All right, welcome to the Redemption Podcast. Uh, man, I'm so excited for our guest today. Um, I've admired him for a long time. We met probably, I think it was a few years ago, um, through, a, through a mutual friend, actually um, uh, he, a friend here that lives locally in Opelika that is a software developer, I think, had come across some of Alan's work, uh, both in uh, not only in the software field, but, but also in the work he was doing in Panama City. And for those of you who do not know, which I didn't at the time, Panama City has this really actually cool, historic, uh, authentic downtown. Most people know Panama City more for like the Redneck Riviera. Sure, sure. Right? So, uh, so it was really cool to, to, to walk and also see uh, to see you grew, you grew up there, uh, see you love on a place the way you, you do, and you've kind of you've brought your gifts like full force uh, into the work you're doing there. Uh, it's both place-based and entrepreneurial. It's really unique. So why don't you, uh, Alan, kind of give us a little bit of a, you know, how you, you a history of growing up in Panama City, yeah. and history and kind of how you got into the, the real estate side. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me. This is, uh, this is fun. Uh, and uh, so Panama City, my grandparents moved here from Tallahassee in the 40s. And uh, started restaurants, and I started restaurants in Panama City. Sort of this, sort of what you think of as a car hop. You know, you pull up, flash your lights, and the lady comes out on roller skates, but not really on roller skates ever. Maybe for a few years, but they come out there. They put the tray on your window. It's burgers, it's fries, it's onion rings. But he started Jimmy's Drive-ins and Tallyho Drive-ins, uh, Columbus, Georgia, Tallahassee, Jacksonville, Pensacola, Panama City, uh, and had a bunch of them. And uh, over the course of uh, from you know 1948 to 1936, when he passed away, my grandfather passed away. Uh, he had a bunch of businesses, uh, restaurants. He built them himself. He died at 36 in a car wreck, uh, but he started car washes too. And car washes was sort of this emerging industry. Uh, people were like, nobody washes cars at car washes. Banks didn't give loans for it. Uh, he built his own equipment. Even uh, fascinating guy. He had lots of uh, vices and demons within him of alcoholism and all the all the terrible stuff. Uh, and passed away, but he was a really phenomenal entrepreneur, terrible father, a terrible husband, great entrepreneur. Uh, my grandmother ran those restaurants and and uh, and car washes for years, leased them out. Uh, my dad took over a couple car washes in the 80s. My uncle took over the restaurants in the 80s uh, and uh, expanded. Uh, my grandmother sold a couple uh, and they sort of narrowed the focus down to really Panama City. So I grew up in the 80s, grew up in Panama City, you know, 33,000 people. Uh, the county is probably 130 at the time. It's 180 now. But I grew up with these sort of, you know, 40-year-old uh, businesses that were attached to my last name. Um, and my parents, my my grandparents and my aunts and uncles were all entrepreneurs in the in the, uh, in the county, all kept a good name. You know, they sponsored teams. They, they uh, you know, never stole from anybody. They were just honest, hardworking business owners. And these businesses became beloved businesses. And I grew up really inheriting a good name uh, of, oh, you're you're one of the branches. Uh, my cousin works at the car washer. He worked at the tallyho, or we love the onion rings there. And so what that does to a kid my age is you grow up and you, you meet a teacher, you meet an administrator, you meet a police officer, and they recognize your last name, and they give you a little more respect, uh, second chances, a lot of second chances. Oh. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's, you, and then you're filled with kind words and second chances and nice things like, Oh, I bet you, you're going to run the car washes when you get older. And now uh, you're so, and you're, you're filled your whole life with just like night. And I thought that was totally normal. Uh, and uh, you know, played football in high school. Uh, you know, it's such a small town. My mom was homecoming queen. My little sister was homecoming queen at the same high school. And uh, so I played football, played football in college, met my wife, got into software. My dad always thought his five children would get into car washing. He thought each one of the kids would own a car wash. My dad is, um, a famous car washer. Uh, if there's such a thing, he, him and his buddy invented this whole car wash model where you drive, you pay and drive through yourself and wash it yourself. The, the express car wash model that we know now as a car wash was invented in Panama city and Baton Rouge. Uh, my dad invented customer tracking with the computer system, tracking tag numbers in the eighties, uh, didn't patent any of it. Just gave all the ideas away to people. Uh, he was international car wash president, which is this huge, it's the world's largest association, world's largest trade show. 
he was the president of the car wash association. So I grew up going to car wash conventions and uh, just my dad would drag. We were homeschoolers. My, my parents would drag us to car wash conventions and uh, we go to Disney World, that kind of thing. And I grew up hearing my dad talk to his friends about debt service and curb cuts and grandfathering of sign codes and variances and you know dealing with employees and firing employees and hiring and marketing. And uh, we didn't really grow up watching sports or politics. We grew up talking about car washes and, and restaurants and dealing with people and you know, my dad dealing with employees of the car wash, which were unorganized and, and sort of, uh, you know, money, a lot of them had money troubles and, and family issues. And, and we would talk about those things. And I saw my aunt and uncles and dads fire people and hire people. And so I just, that was my normal, right? So like what your kid's normal is a lot of times dictates how easy things are later in life. So, uh, you know, starting business, having a job was unusual i didn't you know i just thought everyone started a business and everyone was went around as a kid being filled with kind words from their from their town uh, and that's not normal uh it took me a long time to realize that but i got into software and uh, really just took that um, i had one job out of college uh, in birmingham alabama uh, and immediately started freelancing in my off time building websites for people and that was uh 2003 ish and really got into software I had a great business partner for many years in the software business that uh really mentored me. He was older than I was uh, about eight years. And so he was really like an older brother to me and uh, did well, built, built software companies, accounting software products and sold it. Uh, a few other things and uh, really just applied a lot of lessons that I learned growing up. And he, he pushed me uh, to be better and, and uh, more confident and, uh, you know, did software conferences and uh, sold eBooks of what we were learning. We're just very transparent about the way we were building our company um, and software companies, web-based software companies were a very new thing. Billing people online in a subscription-based sort of model for software was very new. And uh, it was me and our friends that were inventing all the, the sort of industry standard terms now of churn and you know ARPU and things like that, which are acronyms for different metrics within software companies. And uh, just kind of carried that forward uh, into software and sold those and subsequently started in real estate. So just uh, kind of carrying the lessons through uh, into these new businesses. Well, man, that's man, such a fascinating story. I love the, I love the family history. And, uh, you know, uh, so you're a, essentially you're a third gen uh, entrepreneur. Um, yeah. So that's that's awesome. One thing I want to, I kind of want to poke at just for a second, though, is that you kind of acted as if you tripped into real estate. Um, talk a little bit about that and just kind of the, the move. Uh, what moved you into uh, wanting to do real estate? And then yeah. kind of the, I guess, just give us like maybe a little bit of a timeline would be helpful. Like, okay, I've been successful as an entrepreneur. Um, I had this entrepreneurial background you know, real estate's got this kind of attractiveness to it from a, like, maybe it was like an investment thesis that you may yeah. have, but then it, it, you're definitely not like investing with the same kind of thesis as a real estate investor as you, you, you're definitely more community oriented. So sure. maybe like help, maybe bridge that for us like, yeah. about that from your, how your motives may have changed from sure. start to finish. Yeah. Totally. So I'm 40, I'll be 43 this year. So, you know, we bought our first home at the absolute worst time. First home, you know, we were one of that, that age group where it's like, you get out of college, you buy a house, the worst time to buy a house upside down the first house for five years, buy a move down here, buy another house, the worst time, like 2008. Uh, and you're completely upside down on that. And I'm like, you know, 2015's around, I'm like, real estate is terrible. I've been, the two purchases I've made, have been completely at the worst times, right? And and so like, what is investing? Investing is trying to predict the future of whatever you're putting your money in. You're trying to predict how it, what the outcome is. And uh, so we had in 2015, we sold the first company and it was a very, very small seven figure exit, right? It was just enough money where most people would buy a lake house, an RV, a new truck and a big ass boat, right? And be yeah. like, Whoa, look at me, everybody. <laughs> I just had a tech exit. And uh, certainly that's a really fun path for a while, right? Um, but we started looking at real estate. And, I, you know, we actually did a software project with a with an insurance company that was uh, backing an annuity selling in, uh, entity. So I learned about annuities. And uh, so we started looking at all these ways. What do we do with this cash? Do we spend it on toys? Do we put it into something? Do we put it in the stock market? And for me, I, I didn't know. Um, 
and and so I run across stories like you guys uh, and uh, Incremental Development Alliance and people like that. And you start seeing how towns get revitalized. But we and so I started looking at like, well, what do, how do people make mistakes in this real estate stuff? And it's usually when they bite off bigger things than they can chew. I had enough money. And this is a very small pond. Panama City is a very small pond where people were coming to me asking me for money to put into their projects that I knew nothing about. I didn't I didn't know how to read the spreadsheets and they, even though I built accounting software, I had never done real estate. I don't know if they're completely lying to me. And so, you know, in businesses I want to make and in life, I want to make all businesses make lots of mistakes, right? So it's one, the ones that bankrupt you were the, the big ones. And so I want to make, I want to create businesses along the way that have make lots of mistakes, but lots of small mistakes, right? And so we started like, how do you get into real estate? Well, I didn't know anything about even construction. So I was like, all right, I'm going to build a shed in my backyard. And so I was gonna, I'm gonna, I was like, it's gonna be a detached office. It's gonna be up to code. I'm not gonna pull any permits on it because I figured out how to make it a temporary building, and uh, and keep it under that threshold. Uh, but I learned about soffits and what are putting things on 16s and headers on doors and what's house wrap and what is R value and all those kind of things that you, you might would learn your first two or three years being in that industry. I learned it through building a little shed. Right. And so the shed was like five grand. And I was like, oh, OK, because uh, I didn't really grow up building stuff like that. I grew up maybe building a car wash. But that's different than houses and things. And so we started looking at what's the next step. And so we found a little quadplex and I would say in a blighted part of town, not in downtown. Uh, quadplex was like twenty four hundred square feet and it was like 40 bucks a square foot. And so I can, you know, for like uh, I think it was 80,000. And I was like, OK, so. How, how does this project go bad? Right, right. So we're going to put 80 grand in cash in this thing. I'm going to rehab it. Let's say, oh my gosh, it, it needs all new plumbing. All right, what's that? 10 grand? Okay, I can survive that mistake. All right, it needs new electrical service. All right, what's that? Five grand, 10 grand, whatever. I can survive that. So really, I can survive the mistakes of an $80,000 project and learn a little bit. Uh, and that project went well. The mistakes we learned were probably more like two and $3,000. You know, I learned in that project in a second floor apartment, uh, if the tile is cracked in the bathroom and the kitchen, it means the subflooring is a little rotten, right? And so we learned that mistake, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so we got that project done, the, that quadplex, nobody wanted it and it because it had rats in it. And I learned, I had a friend from high school who was a commercial real estate agent, Kevin Wattenberger, who uh, had 55 doors that he owned himself and he walked me through buying it. And he understood that my view of risk was different than a lot of people's. I didn't want turnkey projects. I wanted things that could learn stuff. And uh, we subsequently started buying small properties that nobody wanted. Uh, houses with hoarders. And, and, I, and I found a local wholesaler who sold me a couple of houses. And, um, and so the projects got a little bit bigger by a little bit bigger. And then we started looking at downtown, which is a whole different story um, you know, our downtown in 2017, it, nobody wanted to be here. And it, there were, the prices, the sell prices reflected it. It was literally $10 a square foot to buy a building. Now, those buildings may need new roofs and new plumbings. But I look, you know, you look at this product downtown and you go, why is it $10 a square foot here? But um, an old metal building next to the paper mill is $100 a square foot or $80 a square foot. And, and so you start hearing these, is it, and I kept thinking like, are these bu buildings haunted? Is there like oil right. underneath them, a contamination? And so, yeah, contamination is a possible issue in a lot of projects. And so you just start learning why are things, why are things lower here? And what are the mistakes you're going to learn? So we just start buying small properties, you know, between 10 and $30 a square foot and sellers were thanking us. Oh, thank you for buying our brick building. That's 3000 square feet for $30 a square foot. Yeah, and you put $20 a square foot into it. And the problem is there's no renters, right? So you, the numbers of the renters were paying so little, you, you've seen it. You can't afford to fix the buildings and buying them at a bank level. They're like, nobody's renting there, right? You have no comps. And so it takes a couple to change a market. You have to have a couple, one at least one crazy person who's changing the market, changing the market with how the buildings look. Uh, changing the market with getting renters to pay more. How do you do, how do you get people to pay more who they're like, this is way more than anyone else is paying. So you have to change the market. Yeah, and comments, we bought this, this house that I'm in right now, this building we bought for $10 a square foot. I thought it was a teardown and uh, I had stuck a wall of the walls 
it was not two stories like this. It did not have any electricity in it. It was basically a warehouse. But we walked into it and I saw brick on the inside. And I thought, well, if there's brick on the inside. I bet you there's it's a brick wall, right? Around Florida, you know, most of your constructions would because we're not really, we don't have clay around here and brick material. So it's mostly, so to have a brick building is actually kind of unusual. But you, know, you look at this building and you're like, this is a brick building. Why is no one buying these brick buildings? And it's just, it was bad marketing for the area. And the, the building owners and business owners had gotten older and it wasn't sort of a cool place to be. And so we started buying up downtown and sort of uh, promoting the stories of downtown. And I sort of just fell in love with the stories, realizing that my family was a part of those stories. Like my dad grew up half a mile from here. And, uh, and you start realizing how important stories are and realizing what legacy is. Legacy is when you're a part of a story. And, uh, you know, like this building was the site of the first schoolhouse and church in Bay County. And then they moved the church away and they built this building for the Ford dealership. It was the repair center uh, after World War II. And so you start falling in love with that story. You realize that when you buy down, when you buy old buildings, you're, it's almost like uh, owning a sailboat. When you, you don't actually own a sailboat, you're just the caretaker of the sailboat for a while. And then the next caretaker tells you about the last caretaker. And then so you're let like, me, uh, let, me jump cool. in. let me jump in and test yeah. some things with you. Cause, um, cause I think that's something that I want to like, we're trying to kind of surface a conversation, right? Where in some ways you did this, it was a, it was a great job of that doing exactly what I asked you to do. Uh, and you, you kind of set up this conversation. Great. Because, because what we're trying to do is demystify in some in some ways real estate investing or development, however you want to frame that. You know, uh, we we are continually starting to see that you know spreadsheet uh, driven development is obviously not great for community, and so your story is actually uh, we want it to be less uncommon. Okay, sure. so like. Because you're, you know, you did start out like you had to learn, right? You had to, like you said, you had to start with those small mistakes. You had to go through these incremental, this incremental journey. Like you started with a, you know, a quadplex, you know, like really that gives you this kind of great base understanding of, well, how does all the challenges and problems that kind of happen as property ownership. Mm -hmm. But the thing, the thing that's interesting is when you jump to downtown, this is where I want to kind of talk about, we're trying to, and it's language we're wrestling with, quite honestly, is this like when you move from a, hey, it's kind of a, a you understand the business of property to a whole nother element that I think is expected when you go into a downtown because so much of downtowns, uh, the fabric of that place is embedded. Like you said, these stories are embedded. There, It's kind of down, our historic downtowns are the destination markers for place. Mm -hmm. For the most part. I mean, there are exceptions. And so there's this like, we're starting to call it patron led development. Mm -hmm. And the word patron can make some feel uncomfortable, I think, because it like, it kind of puts this sense of responsibility on you. Uh, and also it makes you feel like you're the one doing it. But um, if you can kind of go with me for a second, yeah. what we think it is though, is it's like this deep seated root of love of place. Like you mm -hmm. said, it's, there's there's these embedded stories in in the buildings, but in the town, but there's also this embedded story in you, mm -hmm. and you have this really unique story in the sense that you're a third generation entrepreneur right. from Panama City. Like you said, you've carried this branch name. Mm -hmm. It allows you. It, it's almost like you're implicated in a way that no one else could be implicated. So this it, this identity of being a patron is. Um, something you're walking through sure. um, and it's at some point what started as, Hey, this is kind of an investment strategy to uh, preserve wealth has transitioned into, wow, this is a bigger story. Mm -hmm. um, and so I want to, and I want to talk about one, I want you to react to that. Like if I called you a patron driven developer, how does that make you feel? Well, you, you're building what the neighborhood needs, right? Which is really not crazy, right? It's like, when, especially for me, I live I live downtown, and so the kind of the joke is like, Alan starts businesses that he wants in his backyard. That's not evil, actually. That's really what you want, right? It's not. That's 
you know, when you, especially when you live in the neighborhood, that's sort of the opposite of gentrification. It's sort of like, oh, no, no, I am in the neighborhood. I'm investing, you know, incremental John Anderson has a great, I just collect quotes and I'll get, I mean, one of you guys gave me a quote too, which is uh, John Anderson says, uh, uh, calls, calls your area that you're developing your farm. Right. And, and the family farm, if you're thinking of it generationally, like you don't want to abuse the family farm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't build some business downtown that was detrimental to downtown. This is where my, not just where my investments are, this is where my kids hang out. This is where I hang out. And, you know, we got one common story that you see. Well, let me touch on it. I heard you guys say many years ago that old buildings are, should be a new asset class. And that clicked in my head of like, you're right. There's not many of them. And if there's not many of them, that's their scarcity. And with scarcity, that's, that's a product that other people cannot replicate. You can go build a 1980s looking quadplex anywhere in this town with a lot but you can't rebuild a hundred year old building. You just can't, you can't match the wabi-sabi and the, the, the patina on it. You can't do it. So that, right. that, that kind of clicked in my head. Right. Um, but when you look at all these common stories of all these downtowns and they all have the, the bloody ones have the exact same thing, too much parking. The roads are too big. The merchants have gotten old and tired. Um, the buildings are covered in stucco. The windows are, are blocked up or bricked up or boarded up. Uh, the seventies came in and they put facades on things, but they didn't need to put facades um, they have, they, they don't allow murals. They don't allow skateboarding. They don't allow puppy dogs to walk around, you know, all those kind of things. And so I, I, I just thought Panama city had this unique problem and I was like, it doesn't, it has the same problem that they fixed in Opelika. I know those guys, Marsh collective, they fixed a bunch of the issues. And so as an investor, if I look at our issue and go, holy cow, other cities, they, here's the exact game plan. All we got to do is implement the exact same thing they did. The the advantage is when I try to get a brewery added downtown and you have pushback from some citizens saying, literally, you're going to ruin downtown and let all the vagrants drink at your brewery. There'll be beer everywhere. They say, some people say, that's Alan Branch. You know, you know his family. They own the tallyho and Jimmy's and the car wash. They've been around forever. I went to high school with them. My, your cousin worked at their restaurant and it buys you that uh, a little more grace. A little people trust you a little bit more. Nothing because of what I've done merely because of what my parents and aunts and uncles have done and grandparents. And so they, they trust you. So if you're looking to change the rules of an area, your outside developer a lot of times comes in and goes, I'm going to do this. And everyone's like, you don't know what we want. You're not from here. We don't like those things, but I'm from here. I'm as Bay County, Panama city as it gets. And I ain't hiding it. And <laughs> people like that. Right. And also these small towns, they have this sort of like, a little bit embarrassed like they're like well we're not as cool as we're opelika we're not like auburn you know we're we're not we're panama city we're not as good as tallahassee and so you have this really low you have high empathy uh and low sort of community pride and so i think that's what investing is you know investing is predicting the future and you can literally see how other people have done in other cities it's really easy they'll tell you how they did it and uh and so i just used the story that we had uh, and to bend some rules, change some rules for everybody. A lot of these cities, especially, they, they don't want to break a rule. They're, they're fear-based and they're like, we'll give you a variance, but we're not going to change the rule for everybody. And you're like, no, 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 we're changing that ordinance completely. We're getting rid of it uh, for everybody. Because what you see too with a lot of downtowns and just real estate in general is one person tries to change the area and they can't. You need change comes from people, not person, people, multiple people. And you need it in, especially with the limited amount of money I have and time, uh, I can't be Alan's the only one that knows how to get through these processes and, and get things done. It's got to be other people figuring it out as well. Uh, it can't be just me. Uh, and so uh, I think it was a number of things, even, you know, awnings that were in the post in the sidewalk, you know, you see balconies that have posts that wasn't allowed in our town. And it was literally like, what if the balcony collapses on somebody? And you're like, then how do they do it in Opelika? How do they do it in New Orleans? How do they do it in all these other cities? This, it can't be that hard, you know, but literally to get a brewery and awnings like that in Panama City, they said, what if the awning flies off in a hurricane? I said, well, my house is right behind it. It's going to hit my house. So I'm going to make this awning as strong as I can to protect my family. Is that good enough for you? Right. And so being a being behind the businesses that you're starting when you're trying to bend, break the rules or bend rules or create new rules is very helpful. Uh, and then you sort of get some, some, you know, uh, people realize that this is your, your backyard. You're not here to abuse it. Uh, and then at some, you know, the story of that is, you know, it's the ball starts rolling. And then at some point people are like, uh, 
they start saying nasty rumors about you, which is the new thing now of like, Alan just gets whatever he wants. And, uh, oh, okay. All the terrible things of like bigger sidewalks uh, and less parking regulations. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> you know, oh, so it's, it's an interesting sort of story. And to get to a point too, where the initial first five years of development downtown, people thought we were nuts. When we moved our family downtown, people were literally like, you would have thought I said, we're moving our family to Fallujah. They were like, you're going to be murdered. There's three vagrants downtown and we've seen them drink beer. They're going to kill your whole family. I'm like, I don't think so. We spent like a month in New York and Brooklyn and like a two weeks in Boston at Airbnb. And yeah, there were vagrants. Have you ever been to Austin, Texas? There's vagrants everywhere. You know, I don't, perhaps there are a little more danger with vagrants. I don't know, but I don't think it's going to be as bad as you think. Um, and so that, you know, on Facebook, if, if the city released a news article or something, people would say, bulldoze it, bulldoze downtown. It's shut it down, you know, just crazy. And you're like, why do, why are people so negative on downtown? It's um, they're kind of hurt because downtown's your living room of the city. Yeah. You know, when you invest in downtown too, it's one of the few places, I mean, your neighbors will always, no matter where you invest, give you your input, whether you're building a quadplex in urban sprawl or, or building downtown, but downtown people really tell you their opinions on what it should be because that, that area represents them, right. As opposed to urban sprawl, the target doesn't really represent them, you know, but downtown represents the heart. It's, and that's what people say, the heart of the city. They mean when people come to a city, they say, show me your town. They usually take them to downtown. You know, that's, it's an interesting thing, you know. Um, you know, and I think, I think as an entrepreneur, you've lived this journey um, to some degree, probably more as a developer or somebody that's trying to make a difference in your place than you did, ever did as a software. You know, because like you said, like you have this identification right with that it means something you know like and so people fight for it when they think they mean but it's also it's also kind of scary because then you have to you have to become something yeah and i think i think that the ingredients that you're speaking to that you may uh one you being local having this local family history like you said it gave you some uh you had you had relational equity okay mm -hmm. Um, but it also like your entrepreneurial journey was actually really unique as a unique ingredient in this whole thing. And I think a lot of people listening need to hear this because I don't know that your success in terms of, hey, and this was our story, too. Um, you know, the, the idea, hey, we're going to we're going to do this beautiful job of fixing up buildings, putting balconies on buildings, understanding place. Um, but like what we underappreciated at the time was like hey there's this whole element where you got to create your own weather um and and most of the businesses that we really like love in a downtown setting are not like the businesses that produce those seven figure exits sure. you know these are actually what we call their their quality of life type mm -hmm. lifestyle businesses i mean and i know i mean the brewery business can be a great business but it's not especially in the craft brewery there's Sure, there's like there's steps and you may have a potential of an exit. But the reality is, is you're building a business there that's for that market. Right. And, um, and so it's a little bit different, the entrepreneurial journey, you know, and you're actually putting yourself out there in a way like you're vulnerable in a way. And um, and I think you're very unique in that, like how transparent you are. Um, and also you're very unique in how you I like to say that, like you crowdsource. Like you put things out on the social media, you engage. Um, so what, I mean, I'd love for you to kind of dive deeper in that, that, yeah. at that, again, like that intersection of, it's really like, I think a lot of people understand the business of property, you know, mm -hmm. Hey, we got a building. It's uh man, it's only $10 a square foot and it's got brick on it. I can't even put the brick on it for that. Like, that's, <laughs> that's really easy to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the part that's not easy to understand is the part you kind of just you kind of glossed over is like, hey, you know, nobody's leasing these buildings. Right. Uh, how do we create value? Well, like one hand's like people say, well, what, where do you find these people? Where do you find the operator? Sure. Sure. Well, it's like you don't find them. You curate them. Right. And you have to be able to go in and you have to have this like like, again, you have this uh, this this willingness and this skill set 
that allowed you to, and, and just for clarity, I think we need to, maybe for the listeners, you are a partner in the breweries, correct? Oh yeah, 50% owner. Yeah. Okay. So, but you still, same thing. You have, it's not like you're out there, you know, you're not making beer, right? No, 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 absolutely you had, to, you had to go curate the talent. Yeah, yeah. Being the talent, you know, and then there's things. So, um, and and it's in these things. So maybe, maybe if you can, Alan, just yeah. maybe try to, try to process that with us. Totally. Like, that, like the mindset, again, going from, hey, I'm investing in some buildings for rent. So, you know, it's a portfolio of leases to, hey, no, this is actually like a living, breathing, uh, like uh, collection of operators mm-hmm. of one that of which I'm, I'm, I am one, but I'm also like kind of breathing life and curating these operators. And it's a community of, of folks. And so you do this yeah. amazingly well. So, yeah. So um, to kind of backfill, so we started history class, which was our first brewery. I believe you came down really before construction even. And I remember you even saying, uh, Alan, it's not like the software business. You're literally picking up nickels and dimes. And uh, and so, and I understood that. I understood because I grew up, not necessarily in the restaurant business, but hearing about it and being sort of uh, sec- secondary to it because my uncle and my my grandparents, uh, certainly with car washes, they're not these sort of infinitely scalable businesses like software is. Um, software has unique challenges, uh, being disconnected from your customers often, uh, and even sort of touching on the patron sort of idea of patron owner, um, software, there's a term called, uh, dog fooding, which means being, you're building a piece of software for you. So you're using it as your customer. And that's when great software is built. It's not built where the development team is in a silo by themselves and they're not touching the customer and, and engaging the customer. Uh, and so using that sort of designing, uh, you know, also being a little ignorant into the industry allows you to sort of, you know, change conventional knowledge and, and wisdom of here's how you typically would do it. Um, yeah. So uh, you mentioned, so we have history class, we got El Weirdo, which is the other brewery. Both of them are brew pubs, but you really touched on sort of the owner operator versus entrepreneur owner. And so I uh, I know that my time, if I'm looking money-wise, is best served building software companies by far. Um, in fact, one of our software companies right now is processing about $500 million a year. Uh, that's a lot of beer if you're trying to sell that number of beer. Uh, and so uh, I have my, one of the things that I get too much, I get too much credit. Uh, I, I should get more credit for being able to surround myself with amazing people. So really what I should get credit for, like, wow, how do you, how does such a dumbass like Alan surround himself with such smart, hardworking people and then let him take all the credit? That really should be the conversation we're having. But um, brewery, right? So I brewed a little beer years ago and I was like, this is kind of fun. It definitely is not something that I want to do forever. And as a job, like I realized that. And so if, if you don't want to be an owner operator, you're really trying to guess the smallest scale of the restaurant that will allow you to have managers that insulate you from day-to-day problems, right? Mm-hmm. Food truck, one food truck or a hot dog cart, you can't hire a manager and personnel and then expect money to come to the owner. It, that's an owner operator size, right? So what is the smallest size brew pub that we could open to where we could afford a management layer that we could cultivate? So my partner in the brewery, we own the buildings and we also own, we're, uh, my wife and I own the buildings completely. My partners, uh, my partner, uh, Tim Whaler and Sarah Whaler, I knew since high school. I didn't know Tim super well in high school, but we kind of uh, became friends again about 10 years ago. He is, he's a city planner. That's his day job, right? So he fills me that that's super helpful to have when you're trying to get parking regulations and ordinance changes and, and things like that. So even when we're building uh, or working on quadplexes, he would tell us, oh, you could fit another unit on here as an ADU. And I'd be like, what does that mean? I'm an idiot. And he would teach me. Uh, and so uh, I got really lucky with Tim. And so Tim and I sort of looked at what is the minimal viable brewery? Uh, we were, I was lucky to know a guy from high school. It was actually in a crosstown high school named Dan Magner. And Dan was uh, used to, used to uh, um, help uh, uh, Texas Roadhouses and Carabas restaurants open for the franchise. So he was good with processes and people. He was also homecoming king, uh, which doesn't really mean anything besides that you don't really create drama and you're typically nice to people. That's And people tend to like you. I'm like, that seems like a good quality of a manager. People people like you. They want to be led by you. You don't create drama. And, uh, you know, he's an awesome guy. He's becoming partner as well in it. And um, 
And so, yeah, you're, you're basically trying to, for me, I'm trying to cultivate managers and people who have, have not been given a chance to lead. Uh, like literally who I would call our CTO now is a former bartender who one of our managers, who's really awesome named Fontella. I was like, I've been doing all our bookkeeping and paying sales taxes and checks and all this stuff. And, and I said, Fontella, do you have a friend who's like really organized, who like loves spreadsheets maybe, or has like a, keeps a budget for themselves? She's like, oh, I know a girl named Allison. I'm like, okay, perfect. Allison should have been an attorney or a C, like MBA. She is phenomenal, right? And so now she literally, uh, now the big problem is like maybe Allison's stealing from us. Uh, you know, that's the next the next problem to overcome because she's so good at her job. Now she gives us the reports we need and she's she handles tasks and stuff. And so surrounding yourself with people who all want to operate the businesses. And I know that I have a certain set of skills, but I, I don't have, I'm not trying to build a job for myself brewing beer or managing a restaurant or brewery. I go to the meetings once a week. I don't really even go there to eat that often because patrons try to talk to me and I start critiquing what we're doing and oh, that needs to be cleaned and, and things like that. So we got really lucky with history class uh, that we, we projected, I said, I said, okay, if we only do 400 grand a year in revenue, we'll be able to hire one manager, two bartenders and a cook. And that will get us by, Tim will do all the brewing and we'll just, you know, we only need about $25,000 in equipment. We're going to underguess everything in the hopes that we can get 400 grand in revenue. And we did that in the first three months. And then we're like, okay, maybe that's a fluke. And we would add a little bit more equipment and we we couldn't keep up a demand. There'd be like one keg left at the end of the week, and uh, and so now we're we're doing uh, history class does just over two million a year. Uh, El Weirdo is going to do about one seven one eight this year. There's forty five employees. There's managers. There's a marketing team. It's a whole thing now. Uh, and so uh, really, it's been I would say that's really been one of the more fun businesses that I've ever created because it's. It's pe mostly people who have never been given a shot because they've been sort of pigeonholed into you're a bartender, you're not a marketer. But when you have a bartender who like posts really good Instagram reels and maybe has a YouTube channel about sailing, you're like, you can do videos for us. And they're like, no, I couldn't. And you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure you could. You should try. Can we pay you hourly to do that? And they're like, oh, no, I don't really... Okay, well, we'll we'll just send it to me and we'll approve it and we'll work on getting making it better. And so that sort of stuff, cultivating people who didn't know they had skills or haven't been given a shot to use their skills has been really, really fun. Uh, and those businesses are are growing. We're buying another building across the street for another concept here in the next uh, two weeks. And uh, so I've I've just surrounded myself with just amazing people who understand what we're trying to do and understand the concept of celebrating the town. Um, both of those businesses, um, I, you know, so me as a storyteller and even I, I had a full, I had a, I had a video production company too for a while. Uh, I, Eric Darnell, who does our video is a phenomenal storyteller. And I really wanted to create clients that he, you know, a client that he could just work on full time and really, you know, give him a home run pitch of like just the easiest client. Like what's easier than just like telling stories of your town? Like, why is the bridge named this? And why is the school named this? And who was the first black police officer? And, you know, how did the town form? And, you know, how did we overcome adversity? That just gives him a home run pitch just to do. And what that, and, and history class, the goal is to celebrate our community and our community stories. Uh, and so the marketing tells the story. It doesn't really talk about the products that much. It really talks about the story and what you should know about the town. So we're hope, we hope that really, um, raises civic pride, right? I think to love a place and you know a few of the stories because uh, those stories are people who are normal people who overcome overcome adversity or poured themselves in the community into in an unusual way and they're being celebrated and they're usually forgotten within like two years is the, is the problem. And so I really, history class tells those stories and then El Weirdo tells the stories of, uh, you know, small towns often celebrate uh, being, you know, normal and, and uh, doesn't really celebrate being unique and weird and, and that sort of stuff. And, and so I wanted to create a concept that celebrated artists and being unusual. Uh, and uh, so we called it El Weirdo. 
Uh, and so uh, inspired by the uh, Chris Farley El Nino skit from SNL. Uh, I am El Nino, also known as the Nino, you know, that kind of thing. So I always say like, this is just dumb enough to work. You know, that's what I always say with some of these things. But uh, yeah, I've just been really lucky. My software partners are phenomenal people. They And I, and I do so many variety of things during the week that all the partners understand that um, oftentimes they have to remind me of what I need to be working on, uh, but I, I care and I'm all over the place sometimes, uh, but they all really appreciate that I'm giving time and and I appreciate them and, and their, their kindness towards me. But um, yeah, I don't know what to add with that. That was a long ramble for a question. Oh, that was great. Yeah. I think the thing that I would take away from that is that, you know, I, I think you're the role you take, both you use you use business as a vehicle but you also this this idea of storytelling yeah and then at every juncture you find opportunities to plug people in to you know because that's the most authentic version of storytelling is when others are actively living out their story and then they're sharing it and getting them to share it like you said whether it's their skills or their talents um you steward that platform in a way And I think a lot, like we we talk to a lot of patrons that are really afraid of getting over that hump or don't have the tools. Sure. Um, one of our groups that, you know, that I think the guys down in Winter Haven, they've actually done a pretty decent job of this through acquisition. They have their own um, a uh, they have their own kind of platform that's got these digital skill sets and the social media and they're doing things to curate, but I do think is like if you think about it from a portfolio perspective, like all right, if I'm going to do this work, like having that that intention around storytelling and the platforms and engaging that, collecting the stories and like I think it's an under uh, appreciated and utilized skill set of a developer that I think you grasp naturally. Um, and what I want to say is that I think what you would say to everybody is is that it's not like unique to you right and so well i had my business partner my first business partner in software who's passed away um he actually took his life after we sold our first company but um he was introverted and we would go to these software conferences and he 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 was a little older than me and so he was like a big brother and he said uh he would he he would people would we would be talking to people and, and he was very introverted and people would say they would start talking to him and what he would do would be to introduce them to somebody else. And that's all he would do. He would just connect people. And I was like, Steve, why do you do that? He's like, so I don't have to talk to people. And everyone thinks that you're like running the party when you're introducing to every, people to everyone. They're like, oh, he's he's the center of the party. And I, I thought, wow, that's really special. It'd be like introducing people and, and moving the spotlight from talking about myself to moving it to other people. And that's that's what storytelling is. Storytelling is typically not telling your story it's telling other people's story mm. uh, i played offensive line high school and college and one thing offensive line men love is when the running back or quarterback the first thing they say after the game is i just want to appreciate those big men on the offensive line first right and and without them i couldn't have scored right? what we literally hate as offensive linemen is when that per- the running back walks into the end zone through a big hole that we created by smashing our faces in, and the running back's like, look at me, everyone. Look at what I did. And you're like, you didn't do anything but walk through the end zone. I'm bloodied from the past 80 yards, right? Or they run around celebrating themselves. People don't like people who celebrate themselves, right? That's That's not a nice quality. It feels good to yourself to do that. But the team, the community around you who supports you does not like that. And for me, what I learned from Steve is that as an introvert, it's much more, it's much easier to talk about other people and celebrate other people, right? My grandfather was the opposite of that. He named every business after himself. (laughs) His picture was on every ad, right? It It was the Jimmy Branch show. Right. And I don't really like that. I mean, certainly uh, being a leader puts you in a position of spotlight. But what great leaders do is they highlight the people around them that are doing the work and not getting the credit. And so that's been a lot of fun on Facebook. You know, um, my I'm very transparent on Facebook and people I think that build some confidence in me from people. People think, oh, you're being authentic. But really what it boils down to is most of your decisions in business and life and are so complex to get to the place that you are, like how, why you did this certain thing that people will try to jump to conclusions of like, you built this business or did this thing because of this thing. And so I typically 
go overboard with my transparency so people can see how complex some of these decisions are or how hard it is for me. So I know that people look at me and they say, white guy, got money, knows everybody. It must be easy for him getting things done. And because it's hard for me, it's easy for him. And so I like showing people it's hard for me too. Uh, I know everyone up there and it took, like I used to have really thick brown hair and that's gone now. <laughs> and, you know, and so it, it's hard for me too. And so I, and that, and that's one thing that really spurred on sort of me moving into wanting to run for mayor is if it's hard for a guy who has money, lives down the street uh, from city hall, everyone at city hall knows me. I know every one of their names. My family's been here forever, yet I have a hard time navigating to get a building permit, to getting a development order, to getting anything done, uh, to figuring out what code enforcement letters mean. What does this mean? I can't get a hold of this person. It's not replaced. If I have a hard time, then the single mom who's trying to start a business or the person of color is going to assume that there's an evil group of people out to get them. Because I felt that way at times. And I'm a rich white guy. And I'm like, they're out to get me. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're just not really good at their jobs or they haven't been the leadership at city hall really hasn't enabled directors to optimize and make efficient processes. And they haven't, they're insulating themselves. Their, their team has insulated themselves from the customer. Right. And so if it's hard for me, if I can't figure out how to navigate things, it's impossible for other people. Cause I got everybody's cell phone number at city hall and they want to be helpful to me. And, uh, you know, so that's really led me going from entrepreneur and being like, I can fix everything from the outside. And we have made progress and we have done good things. But it's, it's, I, I told the city, multiple people in the city, that when we opened history class, they would have bankrupted someone doing this on their spare time with limited funds. The, the bank would have called the note on somebody. They would have run out of money. The city directly attributed to six months of delays of just insanity. And I've launched all kinds of businesses, sold companies and mergers acquisition boards presented in front of a huge, I'm like, well, I had, we had a beverage company with long, I had a minority share in a beverage company years and years ago uh, that took a $15 million um, funding from Coke. And that funding was actually easier to get than building permits in Panama City, right? So oh, yeah. it's easier to get funding from a corporation for a project and partnership than it is building permits on a little tiny brewery. And so- that's really led me into being like, and my parents have been opposed to me doing any sort of political stuff um, until they realized that you got to change the problem from the inside at some point. And uh, especially if you want other people to survive through the, the processes that you have a hard time navigating through. So, Man, that's, uh, I've, I have so many questions I want to ask. Uh, of course, we're running out of, running out of win, uh, time here, but, um, and I want to honor your time. But one thing is, uh, I do want to kind of close out our conversation. We always ask these questions. They always lead to great things. But um, so, so Alan, in all the work you've done, who's, who's somebody, you know, that you think we should know? Yeah, I, I think uh, revitalize or die. I think you guys are doing tremendous work, John Anderson, incremental development Alliance. Um, anytime you run across a downtown that looks great or a building, that looks great. Talk to the talk. Who owns this place? What? I mean, I've called Ocala city they're planning and just been like who's building buildings down there and doing cool stuff um and, and get connected into main street stuff uh it's it's much it's easy to find people doing cool stuff the hard part's breaking out of the analysis paralysis of so many cool stories and going i'm taking action on this or realizing it may take if you're getting started i i'm we bought a building a year ago that took me four years to get under contract of just talking to the owner talking to the owner talking to the owner offers, offers, offers. And so just realizing that this is a long game, uh, the, you know, when you have money, you're able to look further in the distance to plan your future. Uh, when you have less money, you're doing day to day or week to week. And so it's been a nice uh, privilege to be able to look, uh, start looking 10, 15, 20 years down the road to build businesses that are timeless and hopefully be here for a long time. Yeah, man. All right. Um, where would you go? Where, where, where should we go that you've been? Well, you mentioned Winter Park, uh, Winter Gardens, awesome. Ocean Springs, Mississippi is awesome. Um, certainly, we've been to Opelika. Opelika is a great spot, too. There's a lot of big city downtowns. And so, to me, big city downtowns is not really our model to copy or to study. And so, I love the little town that has too many pawn shops and used car lots. That's <laughs> Panama City, right? And so, like... Yeah. 
how how does uh you know so how do these other small potentially coastal cities and the lessons they learn apply to our city and so i'm not really looking on like well how did the lower east side of manhattan uh, no 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 i'm looking at ocean springs mississippi which is off of biloxi you know typically a tourist town things like that um and i'm looking for people or stories that either break my assumption on a thing i'm about to do or confirm my crazy idea makes sense which is what your podcast did multiple times of like downtown historic buildings are a higher asset class i was like i thought they should be finally someone else is on the same page with me you know so that's what you're looking for you're looking for someone who goes here's a here's a possible out pitfall reach and if you're starting a business as an operator I toured breweries and people showed me their accounting reports and their, I, I talked to their accountants. Most of your business, I mean, I've been up to Opelika and see what you guys, I mean, most people will open up and say, oh God, please don't make the same mistakes I did. Because uh, they want you to be successful, uh, you know, so they're willing to share things that they've learned. And so I, I've been greeted with open arms. I've emailed lots of people. I'm about to open a brewery. I could use your wisdom if you're willing to give me 10 minutes of your time. Right. And people typically will, Hey, sure. Let's get on the phone. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, anything that you've read recently that, uh, you would want to read or, well, this has been on my desk, but I haven't, uh, haven't read it yet. Uh, this book, uh, is a good one. That was, I learned this one from, um, John Anderson. Um, but yeah, I would say most of what I read is, um, well, I don't read physical books that much. I listen to some podcasts a lot. Uh, and John Anderson's probably one of my favorite people. He has a great way of looking at properties and how to incrementally get them in partnerships and that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not a big read business book guy. Um, Zingerman's, if you, the Zingerman's, if you Google Zingerman's, they're a restaurant sort of group in uh, Ann Arbor, um, Michigan that that talks a lot about uh, customer service and building these sort of multiple small food and beverage concepts that kind of like an ecosystem. Yeah, that's awesome. Interesting. I have to check that out. That's cool. Yeah, and so little things like that. Um, I I always feel like I just collect little snippets from people and then assemble the sort of here you know Seth Godin. If you're not reading his blog, you should be. He's an amazing writer. It takes two yeah. minutes to read his blog every day. Uh, that kind of stuff. So, well, Alan, you're a gift. Man, I appreciate your time so much, man. I'm just so excited for you and the journey of you've taken. And um, man, I'm uh, yeah, I'd be thinking about you as you're running for mayor. When is the rate? I mean, are you early in that? Yeah, I actually announced I was going to run uh, the day the last mayor got elected. <laughs> oh man, so yeah, well, you got yeah. a long runway, but yeah, uh, well, it's only two years, so I would say we're going to start campaigning in a year, whatever that means. I don't, I don't think he's running again. I don't think anyone's going to run against me, so I'm hoping for no, no campaigning. But uh, it's a big waste of time and money. So, right on. Well, thanks again, my friend. Uh, Enjoyed it. We'll get these notes out to you, um, everybody. Y'all can check out what Alan's doing. And um, one thing is, is um, you can. Uh, Alan has always been gracious. He was gracious to me, let me visit what he's doing. But he did hook up a microphone to me, so just be warned. Uh, if you go, you may uh, you may go on a go on a bit of a ride. Um, so thanks again, Alan. I appreciate your time. Anytime. Right. All right.